BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. On the line with us, our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, world-famous economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, the author of numerous books. His latest, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself, also now available as an e-book, democracyatwork.info, rdwolf with two fs.com, and you can tweet him at profwolf, P-R-O-F-W-O-L-F-F. And uh, Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. It seems to me that in a capitalist society, when something that is intuitively wrong keeps happening over and over and over, and particularly in bigger and bigger ways over time, that there's money behind it, that there's economics behind it. And I'm wondering your thoughts on the economics of mass shootings and police shootings. And I realize those may be two separate things, but your systemic analysis of capitalism and of our society, I would love to hear your take on those topics. Okay. I think about it a lot, like I'm sure most Americans do, watching these horrific headlines over the years, and as you say, getting worse. Here is the way I look at it through a lens of economics. We have a very large industry in this country that produces guns, ammunition, all the paraphernalia that go with having weapons. I'm not here talking about people who have weapons uh, because they like to go hunting. That's a very old tradition in this country, and that was not, for much of our history, associated with anything like the mass shootings that we have witnessed in recent years. So here's my take. That industry saw an opportunity to grow, to grow beyond the people who are either uh, into marksman-type activity uh, or into hunting, uh, to open up a great new field for profitable sale of guns, ammunition, and so on. And they approached advertisers, as capitalists always do, to help them grow, build their market. And what uh, advertisers always do is try to link the product that's paying their uh, bills uh, to something that human beings need. Let me give you a simple example. You produce soap. It's a very pedestrian sort of thing. But if you can do a lot of advertising suggesting that the use of your particular brand of soap will do wonders for the sex life of anybody who takes showers with that soap, you may be able, and history shows us you will be able, to generate a great new uh, demand for your soap by people who are concerned about their sex life. In this case, the guns and ammunitions people, together with the advertising industry, two profitable industries, came up with a doozy. They would fund something called the National Rifle Association and other kinds of public events, uh, institutions, and so on. And they would link the ownership, the purchase and ownership of a gun to being somehow safe to being somehow secure, to being somehow immune to the dangers and troubles that everyone was feeling in the United States as our economic dominance was undermined, as the welfare and standard of living of our working class was undermined, when you felt everything was falling apart, you could feel a little safer if you just 
bought one or maybe five uh, weapons and put them on the back of your pickup truck or in a case in your house that other folks could see, and then you could shoot it occasionally to convince yourself that you were good at this, uh, or wear it on your belt to show how safe you were 24-7. It was a genius advertising ploy, and it made millions of Americans who don't hunt and who don't care about being sharpshooters, it made them buy, store, maintain, repair, oil, and in other words, manage um, a, a storehouse, spending money they probably could not afford and certainly would have had better uses for than simply having these weapons. And then, of course, we have to put that together with the fact that we live in a country the United States, which has more military bases around the world than any other country, which is normally engaged in multiple wars. To date, for example, in Afghanistan, we're still there. In Iraq, we're still there. In Libya and Yemen, directly or indirectly, we are involved. In Syria, we are involved. Within a few weeks of the new of Joseph Biden, he had dumped a drone attack in Syria, killing people. The idea that these weapons are ways of solving problems, that's the contribution of our governmental apparatus. But the real economic core is a very smart, profit-making advertising strategy that the, milita- that the uh, arms producers, uh, the so-called sports arm producers, came up with decades ago. And the National Rifle Association is basically the, the, the public face of this kind of promotion that you will be better off, more secure. And of course, this has to drown out the hard reality which is that the United States has more gun-violent deaths than any other country on the world. And not only that, but we're off the chart. The numbers for the United States are, in some cases, hundreds of times larger than in places like Germany or England or a whole host of other countries. I would add to your advertising shtick, uh, masculinity. I mean, the safety thing, I remember back in the 80s and 90s, that was a big sales pitch, you know, and right. you can stop the guy who's going to carjack you and you, know, you want your wife to be safe, have a gun in her purse. I remember those advertising campaigns. But now it seems like they have hooked up with the whole militia movement and, and now they're promoting this as if you want to be a man, you got to carry a gun. Absolutely. No, look, the American male, if you look at the statistics, has suffered even more in the stagnation of wages uh, than women. Women have been fighting to get a bit of a better deal. They have narrowed at least the gap between male and female wages in the United States. But many of the jobs that were pushed overseas were unionized jobs in which males were uh, predominant for all the reasons, good and bad, uh, that go into that. And so they've disproportionately and losing your job or losing your your woman partner if you have one has associated over and over again with these mass shootings people who have been really hurt in their personal life or their job life then have this gun have this illusion that it makes them somehow manly and or safe and they're going to push against what they see as a threat and they have this gun and the end result is the headlines that we see in this country in a way the rest of the world does not. Yeah. And in the last minute we have, uh, it seems to me that the economics of police shootings have to do with uh, capitalism essentially creating a permanent underclass. And when that underclass rises up, you you meet that with violence. No? Absolutely. I mean, it's a terrible story. You can see it with children in school. If the teacher, even inadvertently, gives kids the idea that somebody in the class, for whatever reason, girls versus boys, non-whites versus whites, people who live in that neighborhood rather than the other neighborhood, or have that name rather than the other name, if there's an allowable outlet for your upsets and your frustrations, 
that's where kids will go. They don't mean to pick somebody. They're doing what it is that the environment somehow suggests. And we put police, overwhelmingly white, in the position of trying to keep the lid on the African-American or Hispanic or Latino communities. It's impossible task, and it blows up in these horrible, unfair ways. Yeah. Amen. Professor Richard Wolf, the website democracyatwork.info, his latest book, The Sickness is the System. You can tweet him at Prof. Wolf. Professor Wolf, it's always great talking with you. Thank you for dropping by today. Thank you, Tom. Great having you with us. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Have you ever successfully reached a Republican colleague in any of the issues that we've been talking about here today? And welcome back. Jerry in Buena Vista, Colorado. Hey, Jerry, what's up? Thanks for watching Free Speech. You bet. Just like to build a little bit on what Richard Wolf just mentioned. I believe he just made the case for why it's con- should be, gun control should be considered uh, an exercise in futility. And that what we really need the failure of education. I believe the failure of early elementary education. Too many students leave the third grade without the necessary skills and they will struggle and ultimately become a problem as they move into the other grades. Baseline is school boards tend to worry about the budget rather than consider the value of education. And until we figure a way to fund education, we're always going to have kids out there who are going to struggle, ultimately become a threat to themselves as well as everybody else. Uh, Gun control isn't going to happen. Too many guns out there, too many people who find rationalization for keeping them. Uh, Richard Wolf made the case. Jerry, are you familiar with the experience of Australia in 1996 after the Port Arthur massacre in Tasmania? Yes, I am. But how, how do Australia, you... it was a, that's an English country. I mean, that's like Canada. Well, I, yes and no. Canada. I've worked in Australia. I've spent a lot of time in that country. I have some very, very good, in fact, one of my very closest friends is, is a, a, an Australian professor of neuroscience. And the cowboy culture in Australia puts the cowboy culture in America to shame. I mean, you know, toxic masculinity in Australia is kind of the national pastime. And yet, when they saw those pictures of all those dead people, I think it was like 35 dead people in the Port Arthur Massacre, and this was after two decades of increasing numbers of mass shootings in Australia, they said, okay, enough is enough. We're, we're over it. We're sick and tired of it. You know, Ganook, <laughs> no more. Dainu. <laughs> and I think America could too. I mean, we talked about this yesterday at some length, but I think that if we can figure out a way to reasonably, appropriately, practically, with the help and, and participation of the mainstream media, share with Americans what kind of damage these weapons do. I mean, we heard the story out of Newtown, for example, that that there were literally piles of dead children, and some of them, the bullets had ripped their faces apart or exploded their heads so badly that they had to do DNA tests to figure out which kid was which. You know, that evokes horrible mental images. But can you imagine what the picture would do? How that might change American behavior? That's what happened in Australia. Well, but how do we do that? Well, I I think, you know, what I called for yesterday is that somebody needs, somebody who is in a position to do so, and I would think that that would come out of the White House, frankly, needs to convene a meeting of all the major media in the United States, or at least a dozen of them, you know, a couple of representatives of print, television, radio, uh, radio probably not so much, and and internet-based media, and get together and say, okay, we're going to release a couple of pictures. We're going to get the permission of the parents or the relatives. We're going to do it tastefully, as it were, you know, in quotes, and we're going to do it in a way that's not going to, or it's going to minimize triggering PTSD in people who are already the victims of violence. But we're going to release the damn pictures. That's what I think we have to do. Jerry, thank you. Tom Harbin here with you. Uh, boy, the headline over at Daily Kos, 
Tucker Carlson goes full insurrectionist, promotes AR-15s to use against the government. Again, let's just clearly establish another one of these Republican talking points because they've been bought and paid for by the gun industry. Make no mistake about it. This is a multi-billion dollar, multi-hundred billion dollar industry that pays its shills very, very well. And prior to the 1970s, nobody in America, all the way back to the founding of our republic, nobody in America was ever trying to make the serious case that the reason the founders wrote the Second Amendment the way they did at the time they did was because they wanted Americans to have weapons that they could use against our own government. Nobody ever made that case. That case on its face is seditious. On its face is treason. Yes, let's take down the government with guns. That's called a coup. That's not called democracy. The founders not only never imagined that, if, if they ever, I'm sure that they did in, in some point, you know, I mean, George Washington put down an armed rebellion. As president, he put down an armed rebellion, the Whiskey Rebellion. Uh, you know, they did not, in, in their wildest dreams, think this would be a good thing. And it wasn't until the 1970s when the National Rifle Association's magazine, The Rifleman, published this article by this 17-year-old kid, this high school kid, who just kind of made up this fantasy that, that the Second Amendment was there so we could prevent tyranny. And back in the 70s, it was in the frame of, you know, if the communists ever really succeed in taking over America, we need our guns to fight back. Because there was this big fear about the communists. Richard Nixon and, 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 you know, had been going on about that. Keep in mind, this was just a couple years after the end of the Nixon presidency. And Nixon had been going on for, you know, at some length about, you know, the communists in Vietnam and the, com and the, and the communists in, in the Soviet Union. And, you know, and, and he had been part of the whole McCarthy thing. You know, and the communists in the State Department and the communists in the Army, the Army-McCarthy hearings. And so it was, yeah, we got to have our guns to protect us from the damn communists. And every time a Democrat came along and said, well, maybe we should make education free, college for free. Oh, you're a communist. Well, how about health care? Shouldn't everybody have health care? Oh, you're a communist. And it worked for years. But the NRA published this article, and it struck a chord with the white nationalists, with the people who, I mean, keep in mind, this was the same time that, Brown versus Board of Education was starting to be enforced in a real way. It happened. Brown v. Board was in 1954. There was a subsequent decision a year or two later, and I, uh, forgive me, I, I can't recall the name of it. It's been a lot of years, but there was a subsequent decision that said that, yes, Brown should be put into place. I mean, basically the argument from the states was, we need more time if we're going to desegregate our schools or if we're going to integrate our schools. We need more time. And so the, the Supreme Court in the second decision following Brown said, yes, but, right, essentially. And they gave them this, there's no urgency kind of message. And so it took two decades for Brown to even, you know, the, the whole busing thing it happened in the 70s. And the blowback to that was, oh, my God, there's black people moving into my neighborhood. I need to have a gun. And that's, that's, when, this, that's when this thing really went full nuts and and well and, and and white people didn't want to say well we have to have a gun because you know uh, black people were rioting in Detroit uh, you know in response to police violence therefore I need a, they didn't want to say that's a, oh yeah well we got to fight back against the commies and it became like an article of faith so last night on Fox News Tucker Carlson has this guest on News Corps over on Daily Coast refers to him as an amosexual Kalyan Noir who once uh, hosted a show on the NRA TV network, which is now out of business. So Carlson says, why, if somebody does something horrible in Boulder, does that mean you should strip the peop from people the single most popular sporting rifle in America? <laughs> that would be the AR-15. The one that commits relatively few crimes. More people are killed by a factor of five by knives than by rifles in this country. Why are they so intent on taking this one away? And his guest on Fox News, this is, this is what your grandpa is hearing on Fox News. Honest to God. His guest says, and I quote, because honestly, if you really look at it, 
A lot of people like to undervalue what the Second Amendment was actually written for. It was designed to be a check against the government. See, here's this big lie. This is a complete lie. Anyhow, he goes on to say, a lot of people don't like to talk about that aspect. Of course, it was also there to allow us to defend ourselves. But if you think about it, the AR-15 symbolically and literally is the best defense against a tyrannical government. The best defense against a tyrannical government, as the guy who wrote the Declaration of Independence said, is an educated and informed public. And what we have is a miseducated and misinformed, malinformed public, intentionally uninformed public, or an intentionally wrongly informed public. And I would add to that that the best defense against a tyrannical government is for the people to become deeply interpenetrated with the government, for us to show up and get inside our political parties. If you're, you know, if you're a Republican voter of good conscience, you can join the Democratic Party. They'd welcome you. But let me add to that. If you're a Republican voter of good conscience, you might want to try and take over the Republican Party and turn them into something at least rational, because it is not a bad thing in a democracy for one political party that I like a lot to have a loyal opposition. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing, but not You're a crazy. to the Tom Hartman program. When the loyal opposition becomes the crazy opposition, that's when everything falls apart. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Let's see here, Sandora in Seattle. Hey, Sandora, what's up? Hey there. I just, I have a really clear response to the um, assault rifles and what's what's been going on with our massacres. I think okay. we as a country, it's like a teenager, you know, when you give them responsibilities, what they can handle and what they can't. Well, we as a country obviously can't handle our gun rights. We've proven it over and over again. And when you look at other countries as the world as a whole, how they've handled it, you know, it's it's just like a, a criminal when they keep breaking the law. There's a prison for it. There's a consequence. And I just think as a whole, we as a country cannot handle our gun rights with the assault yeah. as far as the assault rifles go. So that, well, that's I'm, what I'm I had. And I don't think that you can find any country in the history of the world that has basically just said any any old crazy person who wants to buy, you know, 30, 30 weapons uh, that are capable of firing 100, 100 rounds of, of high velocity ammunition can do so has had a positive outcome as a consequence of that. I mean, you know, you, you look at countries where guns are widely available, like Afghanistan and Iraq. And how's that working out? Right? It's just, yeah, yeah spot on. I want to simplify it. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Sandora, well said. We obviously can't yeah. handle it. 
Thank you. Yep. All right. Thank you very much. And thanks for listening to KBCS. Joe watching Free Speech TV in Elk Grove, California. Hey, Joe, what's up? Uh, hi, how you doing, Tom? Uh, I'm uh, been a long time uh, listener and watcher. I had two things I wanted to bring up. One, there was a book called "And the Fed" by Ron Paul, and um, he's—I guess he's an independent. He's not really a, a Democrat or a Ron Paul's a Republican. Well, okay. He calls himself um, a libertarian as well, but he's still a registered Republican, as is his son, who is now a Republican senator from Kentucky. But it would seem he's trying to distance himself from the party. Oh, okay. But uh, anyway. The, I haven't followed the him in the last few the years, Fed. so that may be the case. But yeah. what, what's and your point about any of the The discussion Fed. of uh, the Federal Reserve, obviously how it began under Rockefeller in 1913, and uh, what has become of the Fed uh, today, which is basically the, the money spigot of the country, and the Federal Reserve note that people are using to spend um, are clearly... Um, I don't know that they noticed the, the, the separation of the Federal Reserve from the state itself and the fact that he's been calling for the, G, the government accounting office to do uh, an audit of the Federal Reserve and, you know, since, I guess, pretty early on in his career. Him and, him and Bernie actually have been calling for that for years, as well as an audit of the Pentagon. Um, but, I, I, you know, you want to go back to the gold standard? I mean, well, the United States would have to go out and buy trillions of dollars standard. worth of gold to keep our currency from just, you know, exploding. I know, but it, it looks to me like like the the, uh, the financial powers of the planet are in search of some kind of uh, currency that maintains value. Uh, Bitcoin is a pretty evident uh, phenomena right now. Uh, but yeah, but that's not going to make it because, you know, all you have to do is have one supercomputer and suddenly you can mint all the Bitcoin in the world. I mean, you know, the, the Bitcoin thing is going to really fall victim to, to computing power eventually. Joe, I, I just don't see a, an alternative to, to, to Federal Reserve, to, you know, to, and, and, and this is why it's being done all over the world. I would love to see an alternative, but uh, or I would actually what I've been saying is I think the Fed should be basically taken over by the Treasury Department. The problem with that is you're putting the Fed under political control. Ivan in El Paso, Texas. You're on the air, Ivan. Thank you so much, Tom. I'm a first-time caller. I've been listening to your show quite a while. And Thank you. I completely agree with what you're saying because all these uh, Republicans in office are not letting this country to progress, to go forward. I mean, one of the reasons why most uh, people believe in Republicans is that they're having right away access on their fingertips to right-wing media, if I can uh, allow to say a little bit on this because um, the mm -hmm. right-wing media was playing a big role on that kind of citizens in the American people. It's that they believe on what they're saying and, and their mind and their, their lives, and that's why Democrats are struggling enough. Yeah. That's why no, I, I, I absolutely agree with you, and I've, I've, I, and I've written about this and talked about this for a long time. There is a, a huge right-wing media infrastructure. Fox News is just the tip of the iceberg, and, and they have been indoctrinating Americans for, for decades, and, and it's not just national, by the way. Every town of any consequence has their own local right-wing media hosts who are, who are spilling this over into state policy, into city policy, making it tough for mayors to do anything, making it tough for state legislators to do it. We're, you, know, you, just, you just see it all over the country, and we're certainly seeing it here. Ivan, thank you for the call. April in Santa Monica. Hey, April, what's up? Hi, Tom. It's good to talk to you again. I just want us to caution ourselves at pointing at the white supremacists that are running around rampant in the country right now. I don't understand why we're surprised about this, because we really need to wrap our minds around the fact that this country was founded by white supremacists. The people yep. that were constantly putting up and saying we want to go back to what the founders are. This is what the founders, the white supremacy is what the founders did. Everything in the Constitution that we have right now that is for all of us, that's for the good, were amendments 
that we had to fight and fight and fight to get. So when they say we want to take our country back, they're referring. These are the founders. These are the people of the founders. So we really need to get at the root of the problem if we want this country to be better. And that means that we can't keep putting the founders up, these men, as if they were something that we are not, because that's how we got here. Yeah, and, and, that, um, and that's I, that so-called originalism. And when Trump says make America great again, at the very least, he's talking about pre-1954 Brown v. Board. You know, let's go back to segregation. Absolutely. And, and his followers will just say that right out loud. Absolutely. And, and also, again, though, until we go back way before that and say to ourselves that the founders founded this country on the myth of white supremacy and yes. then go from there. Yes. We need to go. Oh, and, and you can even go back before the founders. You can go back to the doctrine of discovery that Columbus used to seize Hispaniola, you know, what we now call Haiti and Dominican Republic, and ultimately Puerto Rico. And that brings. I mean, me this to, has deep roots. Yeah, and that brings me to the, my other thing that I get really angered about and frustrated about is the fact that we can even ever have said that Christopher Columbus discovered America when he never even got here. He's never set right. foot plus, on the North American Plus, plus the country like, was already occupied. Yeah, well, yeah, well he, he, did, again, he never even got here to see the occupation. You're right, you're right. You but know, how do you discover a country? I mean, Hispaniola was already occupied, too. Yeah, there were, there yeah. were, you know, hundreds of thousands like, of Taino Indians there. How do you discover a country that's already occupied? It just blows my mind. Uh, and, April, and, thank and you. So well said. On, and not step foot on you're that soil. To Tom <laughs> Amen. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. What a great point April made. And, and I think that white supremacy underlies so much of this stuff. People are willing to trade away that for anything else. On the line with us is Anna Dennis, the executive director of Common Cause Georgia. CommonCause.org slash Georgia is the website. CommonCauseGA is the Twitter handle. And Anna, welcome back to the program. Give us an update on uh, <laughs> putting cologne on Jim Crow. What's, what's going on down there in Georgia? Yeah, thank you, Tom, again for um, having me to talk more about what's going on down here in Georgia. So, like you said, it's putting cologne on Jim Crow. It's Jim Crow suited up in a suit and tie. It's really the narrative of suppression that's going on down here. So, right now, we still have three omnibus catch-all bills that are attempting to suppress the vote of many Georgians across the state. Um, we still see attacks to different provisions around vote by mail, different things like uh, in-person voting, limiting early voting hours, and limiting Dropbox access. So these are some of the attacks that we're seeing. We're seeing other egregious things around, like taking over our boards of elections and different things like that. So we still see these different types of suppressive antics going on down here in Georgia. Anna, I have a question here, and it, it just calls for speculation on your part, but I've been thinking about this for a while. You know, when you see people in line in, I, I used to live in Georgia, you know, I, in, I lived in, uh, in Cobb County in a mostly white suburb, and then we moved up, uh, up north to Roswell in an entirely white suburb. And I never literally in my, in fact, my whole entire life, I don't think I've ever waited more than 10 or 15 minutes to vote. It just, that's it. You know, the longest line was when I lived in Washington, D.C., and that was probably 30 minutes. And, and again, it was an area that was at least at least 60 percent white. And and when you see people standing in line for 10 and 11 hours in Georgia, because the people running the Republican Party, the people running those counties have decided that they're going to do everything they can to discourage people from voting. You get it that people are actually motivated to vote. And this largely happens in black neighborhoods. It also happens, though, in college areas. And, and we're in some cases where there's a lot of seniors who might be Social Security voters. Is it possible that these voter suppression efforts are just going to horribly backfire? That, that when they make it more difficult to vote, when they make it way more difficult to mail-in vote, keep in mind Georgia legalized mail-in voting 15 years ago because they wanted 
older white people who were predominantly Republican to be able to easily and conveniently vote, that those Republican voters are not anywhere near as animated, excited, enthusiastic, upset, angry, pissed off, fill in the blank, right, as are the people who are the, the who this voter suppression is uh, nakedly trying to target. Do you think it's possible that people will say, okay, fine, you're going to make it harder to vote. We're going to try three times. You're going to make it twice as hard. We're going to try three times harder. And it's going to be a blowout election if they succeed in pass. I'm totally with you. We don't want this to happen. We want to make it easy for everyone to vote. Mm -hmm. But if they succeed, is it possible that they're shooting themselves in the foot? You know, Tom, I think you're hitting the nail. I definitely do think this may actually backfire because, like you mentioned, that um, 15 years ago, our vote by mail um, procedures was enacted by a Republican governor, Sonny Perdue, and a Republican-led legislator. And they did this because they did want um, predominantly white older voters to be able to come out um, and vote. But what they're dealing with these different types of requirements, like having an ID, a actually specifically a Georgia ID or a Georgia driver's license or the last four of your social, by adding those types of requirements, they're not just impacting brown folks, black folks, students, new majority communities that are merging to vote. They're also impacting their base. And so when I think about these things that they're trying to enact, I'm like, have they actually thought about the impact to their own uh, populations and their own constituent bases? Because I do think this will have a backfiring impact that is going to actually impact all voters across the board in Georgia, not just a select few and not just a select few counties that they would like to want to dissuade people from voting in those counties. And personally, I know you said you've never waited more than 15 minutes outside of the the Beltway, the Washington, D.C. area, but I've definitely waited over four to six hours. I remember when I first started to vote when I was... um, I believe it was 2000, the 2004 election. I waited in line with my great aunt for four to six hours. And this was before they had provisions on if you were um, disabled, you could like jump the line. But we waited in line and each election cycle, we still had to wait in line. And I will say I do live in a predominantly black um, area and I do live in a very populous county called Fulton County. So we definitely have to wait in line. And our elections boards, they had been very creative this cycle. And especially after our primary in June, we saw people waiting in line 68 hours where they had these mobile units. But now they've been told that with these mobile units, that this legislation, if it passed, they can only replace brick and mortar precincts and only be used for emergency purposes. So now they're still creating this line management problem without even having more provisional ballots and paper ballots on hand to handle the population and the emergency procedures that will be needed once we have this influx of people who are not able to do their vote-by-mail ballot and who need to come to their precincts to vote. Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, if it didn't come across that way, what I was flagging or pointing out by saying I've never in my life waited more than 15 minutes to vote was my own white privilege. And the fact that white neighborhoods are not targeted like this the way that black neighborhoods are, which it just seems obscene. Given that Georgia Republicans are trying to make it harder ultimately for everyone to vote, wink nod, <laughs> is any part of your strategy in combating this? We're talking with Anna Dennis, of uh, the executive director of Common Cause Georgia, commoncause.org slash Georgia. Is any part of your strategy reaching out to, for example, older Georgia voters who have you know, for the last decade and a half been using, you know, mail-in voting just because it's convenient. And, you know, the older you get, the harder it is to get out and stand in line for hours or even minutes. You know, reaching out to those folks and saying, do you realize what your Republicans are trying to do? They're trying to hurt me, but they're going to hurt you. Yeah, we're definitely reaching out to those targeted voters of those demographics. We're running phone banks, text banks. We definitely ask people from across the country to aid us in helping to reach out to these different types of communities to alert them um, of what's happening and what their legislatures are really trying to do. Because like you've mentioned, like I've mentioned, this just doesn't impact black and brown voters or new communities of voters. It actually impacts 
all voters in Georgia. And folks forget that, yes, we have in the Atlanta metro area, we have over 5.0 million voters here. But we have over like 3 million voters across the state who were in other pockets of area. And this really stands a chance to impact them, especially those rural communities who don't have um, transportation means to be able to get to a precinct or to get to early voting through these set hours of nine to five is what they're trying to set them to knowing that most Uh, people in Georgia go to work before nine o'clock and they get off of work after 5 p.m. Yeah, I'm with you. Forgive the interruption, but I see I've got 25 seconds left. What can people who are listening do to help you guys down there in Georgia at commoncause.org slash Georgia? How can we help out? Definitely get the message out, continue the conversations. Follow us on our social media handles. Definitely join into a text bank, a phone bank, and help us reach out to these hard-to-reach communities. Great. So go to commoncause.org slash Georgia, right? That would be a starting point, yes. Anna? Yes, that's yeah, a starting there we go. point. Anna Davis, you are extraordinary. The executive director of Common Cause Georgia. Thanks so much for being with us today. Excuse me, Dennis. Anna Dennis. Me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight. And uh, this is from page 180. The title is What We Need to Remember. The chapter title, the subhead is The Slavery, Losing Your Freedom of Civilization. In 1861, Mark Twain rode the railroad and overland stage across much of the United States, documenting his journey in a book, Roughing It, published in 1871. During a stagecoach ride near the Great Salt Lake, he encountered a group of the Shoshone-speaking Native Americans called the Ghost Suite, often referred to then by whites as the Digger Indians. Twain considered them, quote, the wretchedest type of mankind I have ever seen, end quote, and wrote, quote, they produce nothing at all. They have no villages, no gatherings together into strictly defined tribal communities, a people whose only shelter is a rag cast on a bush to keep off a portion of the snow, and yet who inhabit one of the most rocky, wintry, repulsive wastes that our country or any other man can exhibit. The Bushmen and the Gashutes are manifestly descended from the selfsame gorilla or kangaroo or Norway rat, whichever animal Adam and the Darwinians trace them to, end of quote. Even to this day, many people who have not bothered to study the Shoshone or other hunter-gatherer people imagine them in much of the same way Mark Twain did. Books and movies over the years have implied that their lives must be a continuous, wretched struggle to find food from day to day, and that their cultures and religions hardly qualify as either. In that belief, however, Twain and many modern people are wrong. If the highest goal of contemporary civilization is to have leisure time, free from the demands of providing for food and shelter— so that one may then contemplate the great mysteries of life, and the Shoshone had achieved the pinnacle of success. Our culture teaches that civilizations like city-states come about as a result of technological innovation, such as agriculture, giving people more free time. With this free time, the story goes, they produce art, literature, religion, and explore the cosmos. Primitive cultures don't have these things because they don't have the time for them. In fact, these represent two of our most deadly myths. Leisure time 
Every empirical study of both historic and contemporary cultures finds that the more complex and hierarchical a culture is, the harder the people in it must work and the more frantic their lives are. Just look at how many hours a week the average middle management executive works, about 60. And how many families have two 40-hour-per-week workers devoting 80 hours a week to paying the mortgage and feeding the family. Only a very small class of people within the city-state enjoys the leisure-time state of freedom, its economic and political rulers. And because the ruling class is not producing food, those who are food producers must spend extra time making food for those who are not. The Shoshone require the same average 2,000 calories of food energy every day as do any other humans. However, they expend on average only two hours a day to acquire it because they were a nomadic people who moved from place to place following their food supply. As the seasons changed and food became scarce in one place, they simply moved to another. If one food wasn't available, they knew where and how to find another. Toronto University professor Richard Lee found that the similarly structured tribal group, the Kung of the Kalahari Desert in Africa, spend less than 15 hours a week, two hours a day, attending to gathering food and the other necessities of life. The rest of the time, he said, they played, told stories, and made music. John Yellen of the National Science Foundation found the same to be true of of the Hottentots, another hunter-gatherer group in Africa. The Shoshone had an elaborate and meaningful culture and religion. They generally did not suffer from famines or plagues. They had lived comfortably and happily on their land for at least several thousand, perhaps as many as 10,000 years, keeping the land as clean and pure and productive as it could be in that desert and mountain region, living harmoniously with their neighbors. At the time Mark Twain took his ride through their territory, the Shoshone had accomplished over a thousand years a second achievement, which is regularly touted by our leaders as the highest goal of humankind. They had eliminated warfare. There was not even a word for war in their language. The Shoshone lived a tribal life in one of the most desolate parts of North America with a population density that ranged from one person every 50 square miles to one person every 100 square miles. A typical tribal unit was a single extended family of 5 to 20 people, and they traveled at a leisurely pace across a wide area. On those rare occasions when others, including whites, came to attack them, they simply ran away and hid. The occasions for attack were rare, largely because the Shoshone accumulated no wealth. They had no systems for preserving and storing food, minerals, or anything other than what they could carry. In this regard, they were not poor. Their lives were comfortable, their family interactions meaningful, and their food supply ample. A symbol of this is found in the highest status act a Shoshone could commit in the presence of others, to give them what he had. Generosity is how one achieves social standing among the Shoshone, whereas the accumulation and control of surplus food and possessions were how whites achieved social status. They were called the diggers by whites because they often dug in the ground for roots and food. Uh, whites assumed this implied some sort of agricultural stupidity, but in fact the Shoshone had a deep and rich knowledge of life in their environment both above and below the ground. They used a sacred digging stick to extract food, and it was both manufactured and transported with ritual and ceremony. If a stone had to be moved, a different type of stick was used. When a Shoshone looked out at the natural world, she saw a landscape rich with life, both visible and hidden. That life was known to her, called to her, spoke to her, and often guided her. Last Hours of Ancient Thought. On the line with us is Debbie Hines. We haven't talked to Debbie in quite a while, and I'm so glad to have her back. She's a trial lawyer, legal and political commentator, former prosecutor. In fact, she served as the assistant attorney general for the state of, uh, of Maryland earlier in her career. Her website is imdebbiehines, D-E-B-B-I-E-H-I-N-E-S dot com. And her Twitter handle is also imdebbiehines. And hello, Debbie. Welcome back. Hey, Tom. Long time no speak. It's great being back. Yeah, thank you. I'm so glad. Tell us about what's the latest in the Derek Chauvin trial, the police officer who murdered George Floyd. And also, you wrote a piece or a blog post, Derek Chauvin defense versus justice for George Floyd, worded in another way, the innocence of whiteness justification, essentially. Tell us about the details of the trial and also this perspective that you're bringing to this. So here's the thing, Tom. The trial is going to start on Monday. It's going to start with jury selection. They actually have a jury that's already uh, been seated. We know a little bit about the jury. It's, uh, so far, it's 12 uh, men and women, and it's uh, three alternates. It looks like it's fairly diverse. 
Um, at the end of the day, right now, we actually don't know what's the racial makeup of the actual 12 jurors that are going to hear the case, although it's the whole 15 is a diverse group. But, you know, here's the thing. This case is something that just about everyone has seen the video of. I mean, one of the jurors is only one juror that she, he or she had not seen the video. But everybody has seen the video of uh, Mr. Floyd being pinned down for 8 minutes and 46 seconds as he screamed out uh, 30 times that he couldn't breathe. And so on the one hand, when you're looking at it that way, you would think like, oh, well, they just have to go through the formalities. We live in a world where we do have a justice system and someone has to be brought before trial and the jury has to hear the evidence and convict them, but this should be really a slam dunk case for the prosecution. But at the end of the day, it really is not, and that's because of a lot of different uh, intricate issues and primarily the issue of race and whiteness in America, that it's not going to be that easy for the prosecution to, uh, to get a conviction. So Derek Chauvin is charged with second degree and third degree um, murder and manslaughter. And in my piece that I wrote, I still disagree and I really feel that he should have been charged with first degree murder. I understand that the prosecutor did not didn't, not that they did not feel that necessarily that the facts justified it, but I think they felt that they would not be able to get a conviction on first-degree murder. But really, as a former prosecutor, if this is not a case of first-degree murder, which carries a, a maximum penalty of life in prison, there really isn't any case. I mean, you know, most prosecutors have really have gotten, you know, most first-degree murder cases where it's a shooting and the person shoots at someone eight times because we say each and every time that you pulled the trigger, that was your building and making your intent. And so what they're going to, uh, what's going to be argued is by the defense. And this is an interesting argument, and even though it seems maybe ludicrous to those that are viewing or listening in, it, it could resonate with white people or white jurors. They're saying that, well, Mr. Floyd, when you look at the autopsy report, because that's what the case hinges on, we're looking at the autopsy report, and they're saying that, well, Mr. Floyd did not die um, as a result of what Derek Chauvin did, okay, that he died because he had heart issues and you know, he had other issues. He was COVID-19 positive at the time. He was a sickle cell trait. He has all these other things going on in his body, and that's really what caused him to die. Um, the reason why they're saying that is because the state medical examiner's report basically says that, uh, unlike what we saw on the video, that Mr. Um, Floyd did not die by strangulation by being choked to death, but he died as a result of his heart just giving out on him and then the other factors of being strangled are contributing significant factors involved. That's certainly not what the independent medical examiner found, but that's not going to be the one that's presented by the prosecutor. The independent medical examiner found that Mr. Floyd died as a result mm. of, of strangulation. So what the defense is going to argue for the white police officer is basically that Mr. Floyd was the one who was, uh, who was guilty of anything, that uh, he had had a prior arrest back in 2009, which the judge is going to allow in, and in that prior arrest, it was a drug arrest. And so they're just going to try to paint a very negative picture of Mr. Floyd and to basically say that, well, he had drugs in his system, he was a drug addict, and all of these other things could have killed him. But... I want the jury to basically come in there as every jury is instructed to with your own common sense. And so for them to say, for them to just use their um, defense and say what they're saying, it basically means that if this was back in the day and the not-so-distant past, if this was a lynching, an actual hanging of a black man, and the white defendant, if there were ever such one on trial, would say, oh, he didn't die because he was hanged to death from the tree. He really died because he was overweight, he had diabetes, he had heart conditions, and he had everything else in the world. That's really their defense. But it boils down to who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the video and what you saw happen, or are you going to believe the white man and give him the benefit of the doubt? Yeah, uh, we've come a long way since 1955 when, after Emmett Till was brutally murdered by two white men down in Mississippi, they held a trial and in one hour the jury returned a uh, not guilty verdict on these two white men and one of the jurors said we would have done it a lot earlier if we hadn't taken a break to have a soda. That was justice in 1955 for white people who killed black people. It seems like we've come a long way, but these racialized killings, A, are still happening, 
I really honestly don't believe that even Derek Chauvin, even if he's, you know, some sort of homicidal maniac, would have done this to a white guy, particularly a white guy who was well-dressed. I just don't, I can't even imagine it would have happened. It's like, when do we reach the point where justice is based on the crime, not the victim of the crime? Well, that's the question we've been asking as, uh, for the last 400, over 400 years. When does that happen? When is it a time that black people in America can get justice, not just in the case of police killings, but within the entire criminal justice system? When does that happen? And I don't really see it. Uh, I see it a little different. I don't see it as things have changed really that much, because if you look at 30 years ago, that was the Rodney King case. That was the first case that was allegedly on video by a bystander, and although Mr. King did not die, he was literally beaten to death. And in the first trial against those four police officers, they found those white officers not guilty for a beating that took 12 minutes, almost a little right. longer than George Floyd. So, you know, when you look at the things that have happened, it's not like in the 50s, it didn't change that much with Rodney King, and we saw Eric Garner die on the video, too, and they didn't even bring charges with respect to him. So I'm kind of bad to differ that I don't You're really right. see things as being changed. I think they're different in how, you know, many white people are going about it, particularly white police officers, but I don't really see it being that much of a change, sadly. I know. Yeah. So what do we do to bring about that change, Debbie? We have to overhaul the entire system. We cannot give police officers a pass. We cannot, in the civil system, give them qualified immunity. So if they don't go to jail, they don't even suffer not a penny out of their pocket. The entire system has to be changed. I'm with you. I'm absolutely with you. Debbie, thank you for dropping by. It's, it's you, always Tom. great talking with you. Debbie Hines. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, I am Debbie Hines, D-E-B-B-I-E-H-I-N-E-S dot com is Debbie's website. Uh, and it's also her Twitter handle. I am Debbie Hines. And uh, she's just brilliant. Thank you so much, Debbie. It's great having you with us. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Joe Biden, President Joe Biden finished his first press conference. And, of course, the Republican knives are already out, but uh, I'll just give you a quick recap of the things that he said. I'm getting this uh, largely from the Washington Post. He started out by announcing that he is doubling his vaccine goal. He wanted to have 100 million people vaccinated by 100 days. And keep in mind, the population of the U.S. is around 340 million. He's now setting his goal for the first 100 days as 200 million people. And I think that there's a, a chance he'll hit that. So that's number one. Number two, he says he's going to take uh, big issues one by one and the Republican Party uh, can join in. You know, hey, we welcome their participation. Let's solve the problems of America or they can continue the politics of division, his phrase, which I thought was brilliant. Uh, He went on to say that the filibuster has been abused and he supports revamping it so that he can get his agenda items passed. Uh, There's a variety of ways to do that. He said, I I believe we should go back to the position on the filibuster that existed just when I came to the United States Senate decades ago, um, which is that you must speak while you're doing a filibuster. Uh, This is the so-called talking filibuster. When he was asked about the so-called surge at the border, he pointed out that this happens every year around this time of year, uh, that uh, more, more people are coming right now, not because he's a nice guy, but because this is just you know what always happens. He was asked if uh, May 1st was, in fact, going to be a hard deadline for U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan, and he said that's going to be a challenge. Uh, But, quote, it is not my intention to stay there for a long time, end quote, and that he, quote, can't picture, end quote, troops still being there in a year. He said, my answer is that it's going to be hard to meet the May 1 deadline in terms of tactical reasons, hard to get those troops out. If we leave, we're going to do it in a safe and orderly way. Uh, We're in consultation with our allies and partners. Keep in mind, he's only been in office a couple of months, and Trump had just gutted the State Department, the Justice Department, the EPA. I mean, you know, pick your federal agency. Um, you know, they were just, uh, and, and so it's a tough one. He says he's not going to take a harder line on un- unaccompanied minors. Uh, with regard to North Korea, he said that uh, the United States will respond to North Korea's launch of two ballistic missiles if they escalate their threats. He, he said, quote, I'm also prepared for some form of diplomacy, but it has to be conditioned upon the end result of denuclearization. So that's what we're doing right now, he said. So basically what he said is if North Korea is willing to get rid of their nukes, uh, we're willing to, to come a long way in, in, in their direction. That's going to be a tough one. 
It's going to be a very tough one. But, you know, who knows? Um, when he was asked about all these efforts, we have now 43 states where Republicans have introduced legislation to make it harder for people to vote. Uh, he said that's sick. <laughs> he said it's sick. It's sick. In fact, he said it twice. He said, I'm convinced that we'll be able to stop this because it's the most pernicious thing. This makes Jim Crow look like Jim Eagle and said he's going to do everything he can to pass legislation to protect voting rights in America. Um, he agrees with Obama that the filibuster is a relic of the Jim Crow era. He made news. He said he's going to run for re-election, or he plans to run for re-election in 2024. He'll be 82 years old that year, um, 81 or 82. I'm not sure if he just turned 74 or 78, rather, or if he's been that. I don't, I don't, don't recall when his birthday is, frankly, but, but uh, he'll be in his 80s. And he said that it's his expectation that he's going to run, number one, and number two, that it's his expectation that uh, Kamala Harris will be his, his running mate. Um, uh, when they were asked who he thought he would run against, he said, and I quote, oh, come on, I don't even think about it. I have no idea. I have no idea whether there'll be a Republican Party. Do you? <laughs> Brilliant. Um, he insisted that China will play by international rules. We'll see how that plays out. He said that uh, President Xi is a smart, smart guy who doesn't have a Democrat uh, with a small D bone, a Democratic bone in his body. Uh, he's one of the guys like Putin who thinks that autocracy is the wave of the future. That's what Joe Biden said uh, today. And so, you know, that's, I, I think, a pretty reasonable summary. I hope a pretty reasonable summary of, you know, what he did with his press conference. So back to your phone calls. Sandra in Guadalajara, Mexico. Hey, Sandra. Yes, I just want to comment on the speech and the question and answer that Biden had to go through with all the gotcha questions and how wonderful he brought everything to to the point and know what direction that we're going to be going in our country. And I think it's just wonderful. And I'm even enjoying listening to when they have every day the the young lady that does the, um, what do you call it? Oh, Jen um, Pes- the uh, press conferences, Jen Petsky. Right. right. I mean, I'm looking Sacky. at this every day, and it's just absolutely wonderful. Then I come over to you, and I get a straight point. So down Great. here in Guadalajara, it's wonderful. And I'm an ex-merchant marine. Living oh, that's great. Well Sandra, now. I'm sorry to cut you off, but I've got to run. I, it's the end of the show. But thank you so much for the call, and I hope you call again and we can talk longer. Thanks so much for being with us today. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Be good to yourself and the people around you, huh? You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.